First Palm Media. Nobody covers dog sledding like mushing from First Paw Media. Our team of athletes, volunteers, race organizers, and mushers like Robert and Michelle Forto brings you closer to the sport. If it's happening, we are there. Live from the qualifying races in January and February, the Iditarod in March, and in the summer, mushing takes you on the road with our team and trail tour. We connect you with a history of the sport, in-depth interviews with a top mushers, and great storytelling and breaking news all year long. Follow on mushing.com. Dog Works Radio is sponsored by Alaska Dog Works. Check out their website at alaskadogworks.com. Radio Free Palmer 89.5 KVRF presents Mushing Radio, hosted by Robert Forto. Mushing Radio is about dog-powered sports, living in the Great White North, and mushing. Visit our website at mushingradio.com. Here is your host, Robert Forto. I'm Alex Stein, and you're listening to Iditarod Through the Decades on Mushing Radio, Episode 1, the 1960s. America in the 1960s was, for the most part, marked by peace and prosperity. In 1960, President John F. Kennedy became the youngest man elected president of the United States, and he laid out an ambitious vision for the future. Kennedy challenged the United States to land an astronaut on the moon before the decade was out and return him safely to Earth. The Apollo space program galvanized government and industry, creating a strong partnership to try to accomplish something no one was entirely sure could even be done. Kennedy said in a speech in 1962, But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. And it's worth noting that the early days of the Apollo program were marked by many failures, failures of technology, failures to anticipate unexpected events, and human failures. And yet, despite these failures, the space program was perhaps the ultimate expression of optimism and can-do spirit. Alaska was a brand new state in the 1960s, having just been admitted to the Union in January 1959. Alaska had been a U.S. territory since 1867, when it was purchased from the Russian Empire for the then princely sum of $7.2 million, or about two cents an acre. When Alaska became a state, it had a population of about 224,000 people. In many ways, Alaska embraced the optimism of the 1960s adopting as its state motto the phrase, North to the Future. As with many areas of the United States, Alaska experienced a lot of growth and modernization in the 1960s, during which time it had few paved roads and fewer modern conveniences 
especially outside the larger cities. Many people came up from the lower 48 to seek their fortunes in Alaska, a land rich in natural resources. Others came to Alaska seeking to leave their problems behind and start anew. And while some succeeded and carved out lives in Alaska, many others found the challenges of cold winters, expensive shipping costs, and the frustrations of living in underdeveloped areas too much. This is even reflected in some place names in Alaska. The town of Coldfoot, for example, now best known as a stop on the haul road up to Prudhoe Bay and as a place featured on the TV show Ice Road Truckers, started out as a mining camp called Slate Creek. It got its new name around 1900 when prospectors went up to the area during a long summer season and then beat a hasty retreat when winter came and they literally got cold feet. For thousands of years, Alaskans had relied on dogs to help them get around and transport goods out in the bush. Alfred Brooks, the head of the U.S. Geological Survey, wrote in the early 20th century that countless generations of Alaskan natives have used the dog for transport, and he is to Alaska what the yak is to India or the llama to Peru. Even after airplanes and cars came to Alaska, dogs were still vital outside the cities, where they were used to bring mail in and out of villages and provide a way to haul supplies during long winters. In the early days, dogs were spread out in front of sleds and there were no lead dogs as we think of them today. While some Greenlanders still have sled dogs fanned out in front of a sled, the Russians a few hundred years ago began using what we now think of as the typical modern method of arranging dogs in pairs in a line in front of the sled. The Russians were also the first to assign specific tasks to dogs in specific positions in front of the sled. And especially, they trained dogs to go in the front as lead dogs who would follow commands from the humans and keep the rest of the dog team running smoothly. It may have taken longer for the march of progress to reach Alaska, but even the last frontier was not immune to the desire to modernize. In the 1960s, there was a rush to build and pave roads, put in electricity and running water, and bring civilization into previously remote areas. And while some lamented the loss of the outhouse culture, many more embraced the idea of indoor plumbing and running water. And as Alaska became modernized, the population grew, perhaps because living in Alaska no longer seemed quite as remote as it once had. Even out in the bush, there was an effort to modernize. Dogs and dog sledding were increasingly seen as old-fashioned and messy. Instead, there was a rush to modernize and more and more Alaskans started in the 1950s acquiring snow machines, also known to those outside Alaska as snowmobiles or skidoos. Although there had been snow machines dating back to the early 20th century, perhaps the first was from a 1917 kit that allowed people to turn a Model T into a vehicle known as a snow flyer. The modern snow machine dates to 1956, when Minnesotans adapted a grain elevator conveyor belt to use as a track and repurposed a Chevy bumper to use as a front ski. This prototype served as the basis for early Polaris snow machines. By the late 1950s, the Polaris Husky snow machines were being sold in Anchorage and Fairbanks. But these early machines weren't an easy sell for Alaskans, so Polaris founder Greg Hattin and others set out to take their snow machines to Alaska, traveling to remote villages and showing off these modern miracles. In this 1960 trip, 
Hattin saw dozens of dog teams everywhere he went, but no other snow machines out in the bush. That trip brought Hattin to familiar points on the Iditarod Trail, such as Caltag and Ruby. And it wasn't long before snow machines became more and more popular in Alaska. Joe Reddington Sr., known as the father of the Iditarod, was born in Oklahoma and enlisted in the Army during World War II, where he fought in the Pacific Theater. After the war, Reddington moved to Alaska and filed a homestead near the Iditarod Trail in Kinnick. For much of the 1950s, Reddington lived on Flathorn Lake, Alaska, and hired himself out as a hunting guide along the Iditarod Trail. Reddington learned from old-timers about the importance of the Iditarod Trail, an almost 1,200-mile system of connected trails that runs from Seward up through the Turnigan Arm, through Eagle River to connect before connecting to the Alaska Range, the Susitna and Yetna Rivers, and through Rainy Pass, McGrath, Ophir, Iditarod, Caltag, Unalaklik, Shaktulik, Koyuk, Gullivan, and eventually on into Nome. Reddington wasn't happy that the Iditarod Trail had fallen into disrepair and loved hearing tales of old-timers and their dog teams, as well as stories of great races like the All-Alaska Sweepstakes run in the early 1900s. But by the 1960s, much of the Iditarod Trail had been taken over by the growth of forests and tundra. Reddington and his wife Violet, known as Vi, helped clear parts of the overgrown trail and lobbied to have Iditarod named a National Historic Trail, which would bring attention and federal dollars to help protect the land. Dorothy G. Page, often called the mother of the Iditarod, was born in New Mexico but moved to Alaska in 1960. Page saw her first sled dog race shortly after coming to Alaska and was hooked on the beauty and energy of the dogs. She would later become president of the Wasilla Kinnick Centennial Committee and was determined to come up with an event to celebrate Alaska and Alaskans for the 100th anniversary of the purchase of Alaska from Russia in 1867. Page was distressed by the fact that snow machines seemed to be replacing dogs and dog teams and decided that she would stage a spectacular dog race in 1967. But Page was not a musher herself and had trouble convincing mushers to participate. Even more so in the 1960s than now, mushers were distrustful of outsiders and those who they perceived as not being part of the mushing community. To put it bluntly, there was an informal mushing fraternity and non-musher Dorothy Page definitely was not a member. Joe Reddington met Dorothy Page at the Willow Winter Carnival in 1966, where she was talking to everyone she could about the race she wanted to put on in the next year. From the start, Page wanted her race to reflect the long history of Alaska and the role sled dogs played in that history. Reddington, who by then had his own kennel and was also disturbed by the idea of dog sledding vanishing from Alaska, was intrigued. Reddington, who would often use his dogs to aid in Air Force search and rescue operations, knew how valuable dogs could be out in the remote areas of Alaska. He also had befriended most of the remaining mushers who could potentially compete in Page's race. And Page knew that if she could get Reddington to endorse her race, it would be much easier to recruit other racers. Reddington knew, however, that the key to getting mushers interested was to have a sizable purse for the top finishers. He agreed to support the event if Page could raise a purse of $25,000. While Page worked on raising the $25,000 purse, Reddington and a large group of volunteers cleared a trail between Kinnick and Big Lake, which included nine miles on the historic Iditarod Trail. 
Reddington subdivided part of his homestead at Flathorn Lake into one square foot lots that were sold with deeds to help raise $12,000 to contribute towards the prize money. The Aurora Dog Mushers Club also helped clear part of the Iditarod Trail, and the race was named the Iditarod Trail Sepala Memorial Race to commemorate three-time All-Alaska Sweepstakes champion Leonard Sepala, who also was crucial to the success of the 1925 serum run that helped save Nome from a diphtheria epidemic. Page said Sepala was picked to represent all mushers, but added it could just have easily been named after Scotty Allen, the founder of the All-Alaska Sweepstakes. The race took place in February 1967, just days after Sepala died at age 89 in Seattle, and 58 mushers competed in two heats, running from Knick to Big Lake. Joe Reddington himself competed, but in a pattern he'd repeat with the first Iditarod races, he was so busy with fundraising that he didn't have time to train with his dog team. Reddington ran a team made up of the reject dogs from the kennels of his various children, and he said later that he had no chance to train with most of the dogs before the race. That race included mushers who would become well-known Iditarod mushers in years to come, including future champion Dick Mackey, Herbie Nyakpuk, known in mushing circles as the Shishmarif Cannonball, and an inmate from a prison in Palmer who was allowed to compete as a reward for helping to clear the trail in advance of the race. Contestants entered from all over Alaska, plus two mushers from Massachusetts, and the race was won by Isaac Aklisik from Teller, Alaska, who ran a team of large working dogs. More importantly, the race received widespread press coverage and was well attended. There was a real sense after the 1967 race that dog sledding was poised for a massive comeback. The centennial race got Alaskans excited about dog racing again. Unfortunately, Reddington had put up the deed to his homestead to help guarantee the prize money, and he worried that he'd face foreclosure. After the race ended, people were completely uninterested in pledging money to help offset costs for something that had already happened. Fortunately, Governor Bill Egan and the Alaska Legislature stepped in and helped save the Reddington homestead. For Joe Reddington, this 1967 race made him realize the potential of a longer race, and he envisioned a race from Knick out to the ghost town of Iditarod and back, which would help draw attention to the Iditarod Trail and bring attention back to long-distance dog races. Meanwhile, he thought, the shorter race that he and Paige had started would keep interest high. But, as often happens in Alaska, the weather did not cooperate. In 1968, the race was canceled due to lack of snow, ruining much of the momentum that had been built up. The Sepala Memorial Race would be run one last time in 1969, but for that second race, there was only $1,000 in total prize money and only 12 mushers entered. George Atla won the 1969 race and Joe Reddington himself finished in fourth. Dorothy Page went on to work closely with Reddington and was one of the founders of the original Iditarod Trail Committee. Although she was never a musher herself, Page helped found the Mushers Hall of Fame in Knick. She served four terms on the Wasilla City Council and was elected mayor of Wasilla in 1986. Page was also the president of the Wasilla Knick Willow Creek Historical Society and served as curator of the Wasilla and Knick Museums. After her death in 1989, 
the Wasilla Museum was renamed the Dorothy G. Page Museum. And to this day, the first Iditarod musher who reaches the midpoint of the Iditarod Trail sled dog race receives the Dorothy G. Page Halfway Award. She was also named Honorary Musher for the 25th running of the last great race in 1997. As the 1960s drew to an end, many felt that the initial burst of hope and optimism had been destroyed. President Kennedy was assassinated. Riots and civil rights protests scarred many American cities. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed, and Bobby Kennedy, the president's younger brother, was shot just as he was on his way to wrapping up the 1968 Democratic nomination for president. The country was bogged down in a war in Vietnam that few seemed to understand how they should fight. And there was a huge backlash against much of the progress that had been built. In 1969, Joe Reddington announced an intended expansion of the Sepala Memorial Race. He envisioned a race that would go through Iditarod and then follow the Iditarod Trail all the way to Nome, a distance of over 1,000 miles. He promised that this longer race would have a purse of $50,000. Many scoffed at the idea, and some didn't believe it would even be possible to run a dog team over 1,000 miles. Certainly, no one knew how long it would take to get to Nome by dog sled. It would take Joe Reddington several years to get his new race up and running, and many doubted that what he was trying to do was possible. After all, the vast majority of the Iditarod Trail was overgrown, and it would take an enormous effort just to get the trail into shape. Certainly, running a long-distance dog sled race to Nome was something that was hard a goal that would require everyone involved to organize and measure the best of their energies and skills. It was a goal that would require persevering despite missteps, disasters, and mistakes. And yet, on July 20th, 1969, a spacecraft landed on the surface of the moon. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Tranquility. We copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. And soon after, the astronauts who walked upon the moon were returned safely to the Earth. And if people could mobilize to make that happen, surely it should be possible to drive a dog team over a thousand miles through the remote Alaskan wilderness into Nome. Next week on Iditarod Through the Decades, the 1970s, a decade when Joe Reddington Sr. finally makes his dream come true with an unofficial boost from the military, a check that's no good but nonetheless calms the nerves of mushers poised to rebel, Iditarod's first and only photo finish, the first woman to finish Iditarod, and then the second, sponsor problems, the first musher to win more than once, a guaranteed purse that is definitely not in place when the first dog teams leave Anchorage, a dash of scandal, and much, much more. For Iditarod Through the Decades, I'm Alex Stein.
Did you know that Alaska Dog Works trains service dogs for those in need throughout North America? Each and every service dog that is trained through the Lead Dog Service Dog Program and Michelle Forda Winner Team has an individual training plan. We train for autistic, mobility, psychiatric, and PTSD for our soldiers for service work. If you know of someone that may need a service dog, please take a moment and check out Alaska Dog Works on social media and at alaskadogworks.com. If you like our podcast, there are a few things you can do. You can take a couple of minutes and go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You can also check out all of our Dog Works Radio sponsors and promotions in our show notes. Another thing you can do is go over to Facebook, like our Facebook page, and one last thing, please tell all of your friends by spreading the word about Dog Works Radio. Thank you so much for listening to us. We really appreciate you. Dog Works Radio is produced by Robert Forto, logo art by Angry Squirrel Studios. Dog Works Radio is produced in conjunction with KVRF 89.7 in Palmer, Alaska. For dog training advice, you can contact Alaska Dog Works at 907-841-1686 or visit their website at alaskadogworks.com. If you have a show idea or would like to be a guest, please contact us by sending an email to live at dogworksradio.com. <laughs>